Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we're doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hi, everyone. I'm Ai-jen Poo. And I'm Alicia Garza. And today, unbelievably, is our season finale of Sunstorm. It has been a ride and a journey. It sure has. we launched this podcast, we knew that the world was chaos, but it has literally turned upside down and inside out. We are now in the middle of a global pandemic and about to go into a major economic crisis. I mean, talk about storms. That's a pretty big storm. I would call that a typhoon. And, you know, we know how to make this right. So, that could be the light in the storm for today is that some of us have been in a typhoon for a while. Now that typhoon is um, really visible and present for many more people. And we know who's going to make it right, don't we? That's right. We are the suns in the storm. And you listeners are the suns and ours too. Over the last couple of months, we've been getting the most incredible feedback and questions from you as you all navigate your way through the craziness of American politics in this time and all the crises in our daily lives. And now we're in the middle of a coronavirus crisis and it's all just super complicated and you all are making it through. You're making it happen. You're taking care of each other and the people you love every day. And it is nothing short of inspiring. And we just wanted to spend our last episode talking to you about some of the questions that you have and offering some of our thoughts. So let's go. Um, This one is excellent, which is this. I know that bigger things are happening in the world that make me mad and that I'm fighting against, but sometimes I just want to be a little bit petty. Is that okay? I mean, we're human. (laughs) At the end of the day, we are human, and just because there's a global pandemic doesn't mean that we can't be human. In fact, we have to create the space and allow ourselves to be even more human and more who we are and surround ourselves with people that we love and trust and can hold that. And it is also a time when we have to figure out what it looks like to be our best selves and show up for each other Mm -hmm. in the way that we need. And the two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I think sometimes you need to be petty in order to show up as your best self when it really counts. Listen, So I would say that. You know what? You just said a word because I sometimes feel like I am my best self when I can be petty. (laughs) If I have to, like tame my petty in a moment where petty is 100% necessary, you're not getting the best version of me. With that being said, (laughs) um, I do also recognize that given the current crises, um, we're all a little bit on edge. And so um, I have tried to give myself a petty check. Um, And a petty check just means, you know, am I a little bit on edge today? Did I eat today? Did I drink water? Do I need to stretch? Am I breathing? And if I do all those things and I still need to be petty, go forth and prosper. But if I realize, you know, I haven't eaten today, let me let me eat. And then if that petty goes away, just let it let it go away. 
It might just be a moment in time. Yeah. And it's good to remember that we're in a crazy time right now. And we're going to all just have to be a little bit more generous with ourselves mm-hmm. and with each other. And mm-hmm. the thing that really helps me do that is to just like stop multiple times during the day and just be like, who am I really grateful for right now? And it just puts mm. me in a really different space. And um, mm-hmm. so I found that that's really useful given how crazy things are right now. Here, here. Which is related to our next question, which is about how you manage unbearable stress in the middle of this global pandemic. I mean, we all thought we knew what stress was. That was not a thing. Like what is happening right now is unbearable stress. So Alicia, how do you manage the stress of this moment? Tequila. <laughs> and what kind am, of tequila? Well, these days I'm I'm rocking with Espolone. Um, Aijin, you and I have had this conversation before. I was like in love with a Casamigos and I recently discovered like this vanilla taste that I now can't, I just can't do it. So shout out to my Casamigos lovers, but I'm a traditional girl and this traditional girl needs nothing else in my tequila but agave no other flavor <laughs> I don't want my tequila sweet I want it to burn and so that's what I'm doing these days and I'll just say after we got the like shelter in place order I was like oh shit's getting really real and I had told myself last week actually I need to get on a routine during my days got a shower you know, maybe put on some lipstick, just like try to do as many things that make you feel normal as possible. And when I found out that we were getting a shelter in place order, I was both relieved, but of course my anxiety went through the roof. And I was like, you know what? It is five o'clock and it's time for tequila. And I indulged in tequila and I felt really good about it. I feel really good about it today. I got my ass on the bike and did a half hour ride and sweated that tequila out. I probably won't drink much this week because, you know, all the things like you can just compound stress if you don't actually like deal with it. Um, But sometimes it's totally fine to deal with unbearable stress with tequila. How about you, AP? Tequila's on my list too, like top, top, top. Um, (laughs) Tequila, right now I'm going through a mezcal phase. So, um, but also one thing that I found really helpful is going for walks, even if it's like a super short walk around the block. Um, today there's sun in Chicago and it's not very cold. Um, so even just walking around the block, getting a little bit of fresh air, getting a little vitamin D, you come back in and you're like, okay. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like a deep breath. You know, so don't forget social distancing does not mean you have to stay in your house. Social distancing means that you just need to stay six feet away from other people and you can still go out and get some sun and vitamin D and fresh air. And it's really helpful. Ashay, I love that. Okay. So let's take some questions from Instagram. This one's from at Kendra C. It's actually like Kendra, see? Hey, girl, hey. The question is, what shows do you watch on your downtime? How about you, AP? What shows are you watching? Mm, Well, we're all kind of in quarantine in our houses. And um, so I've been watching with my 
eight-year-old stepdaughter shows, um, including Lego Masters, which is a competition kind of like Top Chef, um, but it's people who are really good at building Lego scenes, and it's really high drama. <laughs> it's mm. really stressful. Yeah, but good, mm. satisfying, and yeah, it's a really good reality show. That's amazing. Um, I am watching reality shows on repeat. So basically, I have decided that I'm only going to give myself one hour of any type of like CNN, MSNBC type thing a day, because frankly, all they do is just repeat the same shit over and over again all day. And that is anxiety producing. And so I've gone back into my land of reality shows, which is usually what I will do when I like stop my work day. Um, this week I have been really catching up on Shaws of Sunset. Um, with, oh boy. Oh you boy. know, it's like a guilty pleasure. And then of course I'm all into this housewives franchise. Although I did just learn recently that the reunion show has been postponed because they can't film because of the Rona. Mm-hmm. So, um, I will also say that I have resurrected an oldie but goodie starting at season one, episode one, which is, drumroll, Sex in the City. It's just oh, so good. Yeah, and there's so many seasons. It <laughs> might just help us survive it might, coronavirus. It might. I mean, I've seen every episode about a thousand times, but every time I watch it, I notice something new, and I'm really appreciating it. And usually what I do is I'll start from season one, episode one, and I'll go all the way through the two movies. It's very cathartic. (laughs) One of the things that you've really helped me do, Alicia, is embrace this moment that we're in. There's all these ways that we could be in denial about the fact that there is a global pandemic and there is a virus and it is spreading and lots of people are infected and nobody has tests. Like There's so many dark holes that we could go down and uh, in a lot of resistance to this new reality that I'm seeing everywhere as people are still like gathered in bars and restaurants and wherever else and not taking it seriously. I think this idea that we have to embrace it, including giving it a nickname, the Rona, right? The Rona. And just saying like, we're going to go back in on Sex in the City, just figuring out how else we can be intentional about how we live into this moment um, and not be resisting it, but just be like, okay, mm-hmm. here's what we're going to do. We're going to look lovingly at our reality and figure out mm-hmm. how we're going to make it fun and joyful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that love story between Carrie and Big is so good. And now, of course, I have different takes on it at different points in my life. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, girl, I've seen that coming. Uh, <laughs> but we will come back to Carrie and Big another time because we have so many questions from our listeners. Yes. Okay. Another question from B. Humethelian is, what keeps you going when you feel discouraged or dismissed or lost or unmotivated? How do you keep the hope for or faith in a better tomorrow? That's a really good question, right? Hope is everything and you have to cultivate it and know that it is always there for you to tap into. So Mm. cultivating hope is a big part, I think, of staying sunny through the storms of our life. 
So, Alicia, how do you cultivate hope or faith in a better tomorrow? Well, hope is something that I feel like I have to cultivate every day. It's a commitment and a practice that I have. Um, The reality is, like, we live in a context that has hope, and there are places where we can feel hopeless. Both of those things exist at the same time. So for example, yesterday I was sitting in front of my computer trying to focus enough to get some work done. And I was getting all of these messages about what's going on in our country and in my city and all the things. And I started to get really anxious and feel not hopeful. And then I looked up out the window and I saw that there's a bird and it's gathering sticks to build a nest which reminded me that springtime is almost here and that this is actually my favorite time of year when the days stay light longer and it warms up. And it just reminds me that all of those things can exist at the same time. It's okay if we're not hopeful all the time, but having a practice and cultivating a practice of finding the things that we look forward to, right? The things that we... Um, anticipate that are positive um, is a good practice to cultivate in your everyday life so that even when things around you feel hopeless, that we're still tapping into the little slices of hope that we see every day. To me, it's like hope can kind of be mushed into this concept of like being happy all the time. And I don't think that's what hope is. I think hope is possibility. It's the presence of what's possible. And it's the presence of our imagination. When we say we hope for something, it's something that we want to come into existence that may not be there yet. And I think of faith in the same way, right? Faith is the belief in things seen and unseen. And the more that we cultivate our muscles to just really tune in to those places that are around us all the time, and it actually impacts my outlook on the work that we do. It impacts my outlook on the world. Things are always changing and in process. And some of that change is decay and decline. And some of that change is things that are yet to be born. And so we can find little instances and examples of things yet to be born all the time, all around us. I love that. Here, here. Here, here. Thank you. Be Humi the Lion, maybe? These Instagram names are everything. Let's go to our next question. I want to mm-hmm. um, ask you this question from mm. Professor Joan Robinson, who asked, mm. how does a grassroots movement become financially sustainable for at least you as one person? Because a gal's got to eat, she says. Um, what's your take mm. on this? Oh, wow. I mean, this is the big question because I think that grassroots movements that are the most sustainable are the ones that are funded by the people who are part of that movement. Um, Everyday people who believe in something enough uh, that they want to contribute to it, right? Like farm workers, before they had a union, they said to themselves, if we want an organization, we have to build it, we have to pay for it. And they created what eventually became United Farm Workers. And it is a financially sustainable organization, even though all of the grassroots members of that organization are incredibly low income. 
So it's totally possible for anybody to build a sustainable organization, but you do have to take ownership and fund it, contribute to it being sustainable. And I think when a movement is able to win and able to provide real value to the lives of the people who it was created for, it is on a path to being sustainable. You know that you as a movement have real meaning and real value to everyday people. And that is the key to me. Mm. I love that. That makes me so, so happy. I'm going to say that I think that grassroots movements are for the purpose of building a world, right, where all of us has what we need to not just survive, but to live well. By living well, I mean really living in such a way where we have the things that we need to be okay. And everybody else has those things too. I think that, you know, there are times when folk want our movement to pay the bills. And I agree with you, Ijen, that I think the best movements are the ones that are funded by the people. And I think movements aren't really designed for that, to be honest. Um, We try to do our best, right, to create the kinds of institutions that can take care of people as they're fighting for justice. And I think ultimately, in an ideal world, right, this is not how this would be set up. So a gal's got to eat. And I feel you, Professor Joan Robinson. And I would say, you know, if a gal's got to eat and you're not able to find movement work that sustains you financially, then my probable advice would be find work that can sustain you financially and think about other ways to contribute to the movement. Mm, beautiful. Represent. Ooh, represent. That was a comprehensive <laughs> response from Olivia and I, Jen. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I found another one that I like from at Callisto Zenda. Tips for being armchair activists during quarantine. Okay. Here's what I think people need to be doing right now. I think that we all, from inside our homes or the block walk that we're going to do every day to get outside and get some vitamin D six feet away from any other human that you don't already live with, um, I think that what we need to be doing is flooding Congress with calls. Mm. The reality is that as we are all kind of sheltered in place, There are rules that are being made right now as we speak that are basically determining what the future of this country is going to look like. And rules that are made under crisis are really tricky because sometimes those rules are designed to just deal with what's in front of you, but they might have short-term consequences, intermediate-term consequences, or long-term consequences. Um, And that's the part that we have to really pay attention to. Uh, The reality of this situation is that a lot of things could have been put in place to avoid where we are right now. We still have the opportunity to put things in place that can undo past harms and set us up in a good place for the long run, like making sure that workers are getting paid sick time. Um, That shouldn't just happen in times of crisis, right? That should happen all the time. (laughs) So I would say really pay attention to what rules are being made right now and make sure that the person who represents you is hearing from you regularly about what you expect them to do in this moment. What do you think, AP? What is a good tip 
for folks who want to be armchair activists during quarantine. And I'm taking armchair activists to mean, you know, somebody who can't go and protest at their state capitol, but they still want to make their voice heard. I agree with you completely. Actually, now is a time, if you don't know who your member of Congress is or who your senators are, to get all of that information, both at the federal level in terms of House of Representatives and the Senate, as well as your state legislature. Figure out who represents you. Get all of their numbers on a piece of paper that you put on your fridge you have at your disposal like immediately, as well as the mayor's office and your city council member, because there is going to have to be advocacy at every level to make sure that in the midst of this coronavirus crisis, that there is relief that gets to the right people. And we're very soon heading into an economic crisis that was triggered by this public health crisis. And there's going to be a lot of talk about how we bail out industries like the airline industry, and there's already been an intention on the part of the president to bail out big corporations in this moment. And meanwhile, you have millions and millions of everyday working people who are really looking at their families, their children, the people who they have to care for and put food on the table for and keep a roof over their heads and who have no idea how they're going to do that. So we have to make sure that any bailout that happens bails out everyday working people who are really on the front lines of this crisis and came into this crisis from a place of instability and insecurity. So we're going to have to make sure that federal assistance are really focused on bailing out everyday people and that the kind of assistance and relief that's offered at the state level and the local level is as inclusive as possible. One of the things that Alicia said really early on um, as we were watching this coronavirus unfold in China and other places, Italy, was that, you know, this virus doesn't care where you're from what your employment status is, if you're an independent contractor, you've got a W-2 employment situation, or what language you speak, it is a equal opportunity virus, <laughs> which means that our solutions have to be totally inclusive because at the end of the day, we are all connected and this moment is really showing that our futures depend on our ability to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. So here's a good one from the survey that we sent out, um, meaning it doesn't have a name attached to it, but I think it's excellent, especially for this time. So let's dive in. What is up with the toxicity in so many organizing spaces? Over the last eight years, I have worked in an organizer capacity with labor unions and nonprofits, and I have volunteered with grassroots civics groups. In each role, I have witnessed people trying to undermine others' work, other harmful behavior, gaslighting, unrealistic work hour expectations that contribute to burnout, and also an elitism that alienates coworkers or members who did not have a white, educated, upper-middle-class upbringing. What is up with that? Are your orgs unicorns? Hmm. It is up with that. Big question. Big question. (laughs) Boom, boom, boom. It's a good one, right? Ooh, yeah. Mm. It's a good one. Mm. You should take the first Mm. shot at this. I be thinking about this stuff all the time. Okay. 
So here's the deal. Having worked in many sectors, not just nonprofit and organizing spaces, I will say that this can be true across every space. And it's because it is inhabited by human beings. (laughs) So we should not think that there is some magical space where um, these things don't happen just because people are magical humans. Um, Actually, conflict and these kinds of tensions are really normal. Every place that people get together to try and accomplish something together. And what actually I think is happening when you find a space that is not that way is that someone has paid a lot of attention or some group of people have paid a lot of attention to um, developing the kind of culture where those behaviors are actually not incentivized. So I will just say from my vantage point as somebody who runs my own organization and gets to work in what I consider to be a kick-ass organization, it is not actually encouraged for people to be competitive at NDWA. We do actually have a culture of working hard, but we also have a culture of like making sure that people are well taken care of. And by well taken care of, what I mean is I don't think we encourage people to work until they drop. Um, I think that we have high expectations for people to show up as if the work that we do matters, but we also very much recognize that the people who do the work matters. And I I lay that out because I do think that um, we don't have enough conversation about the fact that in a lot of ways, our organizations are kind of microcosms for the world that we're trying to build. (laughs) And a mentor told me this many, many years ago that you know, we've got to pay just as much attention to the vehicles we create as the work that's coming out of them. And that if we're creating the kinds of vehicles that are reproducing the same social dynamics that we're trying to interrupt in our, quote, external work, that's a big problem. (laughs) And so um, my response to this person would be, there is no place that is perfect, um, but there are definitely things that can and should be done to discourage the kind of behavior that you're talking about here. Last thing I'll say on this piece is that I do think that in a lot of ways, some of our organizations are inside of structures that actually weren't built for the kind of work that we're trying to do. And so a lot of us are attempting to do transformative work inside of structures that themselves are not designed to be transformative. And so we've got to actually pay attention to that, not at the expense of the work that we're trying to accomplish, but actually see that as a part of our work, that we're trying to create vehicles that provide a window into the world that we're trying to create. And it really does start with us. I mean, what do you think about this, Aijin? You run a badass organization that I am super lucky to be a part of. Tell us about, you know, how you create the kind of culture where people are not trying to cut each other's throats, but are really, really looking for ways to lift each other up. Mm. I mean, I think no organization is perfect and it's an ongoing challenge. And like anything else in our work, it requires intention, leadership, skill. And so what I mean by that is organizational cultures are created. They are created through written and unwritten rules. 
that then get modeled and embodied. And so I think it's really important to have explicit conversations about what kind of organizational culture you want to have and what are the values that you think are most important in an organizational culture. Like there's a nonprofit called People's Action, and one of their values is a spirit of joyous rebellion. So like, what do you want your culture to reflect and is an organization that does rapid response work. And um, I think that they have a culture of celebrating failed ideas. They call them joyful funerals for bad ideas that they decide to put to bed. You know, just their ways of setting an intention around your organizational culture that start to help everybody embody them. And then I think it's important to have people who are really good at paying attention to organizational culture. I don't think that it's actually my strength, but to have other people on the team who are really good at that, at thinking about what's the culture we want to set, how do we set it, and how do we make sure that it's really felt um, and held and, and embraced by everybody. Mm-hmm. I'll say, I love this. I'm going to give Aijen more credit than she'll take, which is, because um, she's like, I don't think it's my strength, but it totally is, Aijen. You bring out a spirit in people that's like, let's fucking win. And we're only going to win <laughs> if we're in this together. And that is so the opposite of like corporate culture, which is really about moving somebody else out of the way so that you can advance. And we really don't have that culture in our organization. And I think people can tell when they come into the organization, like, whoa, this is actually really different. I've never really been in a place where women of color specifically were encouraged to lead and to take up space and that space that we're taking up is actually space that the world needs us to step into. And we really are developing that practice so that um, that can get reflected in our work externally. So I'm excited mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. I am too. It all just comes down to our shared obsession for winning, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it is my self-care. <laughs> We're both just obsessed with winning, and we know we can only Mm -hmm. win together, so everything else falls from there. (laughs) That's right, and we both place our bets on women of color (laughs) as the protagonist in this terrible, terrible story. Let's go to our next question. There's so many good ones. Okay, yes. There's one here that's kind of interesting. Juicy one from Nanny K784. As your light and strength grew as an organizer and as a person in general, how did you deal with the persons who may have been friends, colleagues, etc., who maybe felt intimidated by you or jealous of you? Woo! This is like, oh, right? uh, yeah, heavy duty. Oracle. Ooh, really heavy duty. You want to go? You want me to go? I want you to go. Um, so this is so hard. Um, and so shout out to Nanny K784 um, for asking the million dollar question. And the sad truth of it all is this happens. I have had people in my life who have not been happy about success that I've had. And I will admit that at first, it was really a painful, painful thing for me. And I've grown in my thinking around it over time. And so I want to share some of that with you. Um, The first thing is that 
I've learned some stuff, which is that not everybody is going to be happy for you. (laughs) And I remember my mom used to say to me something like, um, something about not telling everybody all of your business because not everybody's going to be rooting for you. It was basically something to the effect of like, keep your blessings to yourself. And I think that a lot of us are told things like that. And, you know, it encourages us actually to kind of like not celebrate ourselves (laughs) in this weird way. And I had a whole period in my life where I was like ashamed to celebrate things that I worked really, really hard for because I was worried that somebody else was not going to be happy for me. So the mantra that I have adopted in this period is like, we can actually all be big together. I don't have to make myself small for somebody else to feel big. And actually, that's not the kind of relationship that I want. And so as a result of that, um, there are friends that I've had to let go because they were not actually happy for my success. And as painful as it is, what I also realized was that not having that weight really freed me to be in community that really does want you to win (laughs) and to be in community where people see your wins as their wins. And actually like cutting some of that negative energy out created more space for me to grow relationships that I really, really value today. But I've also just kind of gotten to a place where I've said, it's okay to grieve those things um, because actually it's, unfortunately, a very human thing to experience jealousy or be intimidated by people. Um, That's human, right? And we all have that no matter how successful we are. But we also all have the capacity to be self-aware. And so where I started to cut dead weight was where people could not be self-aware. Like, hey, I feel embarrassed because I'm really jealous of this success that you just had. Like actually taking responsibility for that. If someone can do that in my life, they can stick around. Um, But if Mm. they can't and they're acting from that place of like not being self-aware about our very human tendencies, then that is going to have an impact on our relationship. So I guess the point of this is to say um, it's okay to grieve that. It's also okay to recognize that those feelings are superhuman, but you also get to have choice around what you do with them. And that includes with work colleagues or friends or people in your life that are intimidated by things that are good that are happening to you. That was so helpful to me, though, the way you just articulated that. And I actually think, Alicia, this is your superpower. You are Mm. so great at being clear about boundaries, but also so compassionate. You know, you could have easily been like, well, if you're jealous, like, then you ain't my friend. And, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but that's, that's not it, actually. And at the end of the day, all of us have those feelings. They're totally human. And the people that you want to really invest in and really put your energy in the relationships of are the ones who are going to be self-aware enough to be on the path with you. Right. Hmm. Well, I'm glad, and I'm glad that I could skin my knees a couple times so that that we have a path because it was rough getting there. But now that I'm there, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So there's one more question that I'm dying to ask, and then of course we have to tie up. What is something in your work that you would have done differently, or where you've really evolved in your thinking? Um. What are you thinking? In response to this, 
Um, oh, okay. I have one. Um, this is actually mm. like a pet peeve of mine right now. So I'll just, <laughs> um, but also like deeply human, right? So early on in my like organizer life, I was really militant about a lot of things that I thought and believed. Very, very militant about these things. And I think I had a very black or white approach to my organizing. Things were good or bad, right or wrong. And that could go from people who are politicians or elected officials, right? It could go to a certain kind of work that people did or didn't do. I think I was really steeped in um, a viewpoint about organizing and activism that I think had elements of like clickishness and um, Mm. like a cool kids club, right? And so Mm -hmm. if you didn't think exactly the way I thought about a thing, like I just like would not mess with you. And I came to realize over time that that's just not the way that the world works. And not only is it not helpful to segregate ourselves into those kinds of rigid boxes, but it's actually also not how change happens and it's not how the world works. And Mm. I now believe, right, that there is positive and negative aspects to everything. And that includes Mm. like elected officials. It includes certain types of organizing work. It includes, you know, all the things that I thought were black and white, right or wrong. You know, I would do this or I wouldn't do this. I've actually found over my organizing career that I'm much more open to. And I think I'm much more open to those things because um, I realize that it's not that simple. And one of the things that really shifted my thinking around this stuff was being in Ferguson, Missouri, um, during the uprising that resulted from Mike Brown being murdered by Darren Wilson. I saw and experienced a lot in the five weeks that I spent there where I got to train organizers and, you know, really witness firsthand how brutal a state apparatus can be, but also the resilience and like real power of people who are just fucking sick and tired of being sick and tired. And really Mike Brown was like the straw that broke the camel's back, but the camel's back had been struggling for a while. Um, And I, I saw people trying to create things from conditions that really didn't support it. And that includes like, organizing, right, includes action. Like, I just remember seeing folk try to build something with no roadmap. And it really shook. It shook my sense of everything that I thought to be right or wrong, good or bad, you know. And I think having a broader lens and perspective has helped me be a better organizer, quite frankly. It's helped me Mm. um, build with people that I didn't think I would be able to build with before. It has helped me have more compassion for things that I don't do. And it's also helped me be self-aware. So I I started to notice in my body places where I still have remnants of some of that stuff. So like Mm. somebody says something that I deeply disagree with, you know, I still get that heart palpitation and 
start to jump into that automatic reaction mode. Now that I notice it, I can talk myself down from it, but it's, it's really a remnant of years and years of like very black or white, right or wrong kind of thinking that I don't really think served me. That's really powerful. (laughs) I was thinking about how when I first started out doing the work, the process through which you would come to decisions was really important to me. Like I paid a lot of attention to it and really thought a lot about how to design processes that were as inclusive as possible and really vigilant about making sure that, you know, especially in my domestic worker organizing, that the workers were at the center of every single decision, big and small. And over time, it's not that I ever felt like it wasn't important, but I started to realize like, oh, if we never win, then the process doesn't matter as much because Mm. at the end of the day, spending 80% of your energy on process and not enough energy on how you're actually going to get to the finish line and cross it and do what needs to be done. It's like, are you really being of service? And so over the years, that balance between a lot of time and energy internally and thinking through process and externally on figuring out what is required to win, you know, has just been like a thing that I've just grappled with over the years. And where I am now is that there's an essential piece, which is really about communication, because I think that sometimes that's really at the heart of it, right? Is that people need to be connected and stay connected through a process. And it's really hard to do that if people don't know what's going on and aren't getting communicated to. So anyway, I just think a lot more about communication and how to do that better because at the end of the day, failed processes and really our inability to win, sometimes it can be a result of not having good communication, you know? Mm. God, I'm taking so much from that, Aizen, including, you know, how do we balance priorities while also keeping the goal in sight, right? So we deeply have goals of more participation from more people. And, right, we are also facing unprecedented times where we've got to balance, right, like what we're trying to build and also getting stuff done and winning for our people and creating more space for the kinds of things that we want, right? So, ooh, I'm going to take that home with me and really marinate on that because you just made me think a lot differently about that question. Hot, hot, hot. So thank you to all of our lovely listeners. This has been such an incredible pleasure to create this podcast. And we have loved sharing this season of Sunstorm with you. Please rate us and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. It helps new people find us. And we're going to need more stories and more connecting in this storm. And listen, it is really like a typhoon right now. So we really are going to need each other more and more as the days go on. So please stay safe out there and keep washing those hands. We'll be here for you. Follow us at Sunstorm Pod 
on social media and tweet us at Aizenpu and Alicia Garza, hashtag Sunstorm. We can't wait to hear from you. We love you. Stay safe in the storm. Love you. Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Aijen Pu, Christina Mevs Apgar, and Jess Morales Roquetto. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Our production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Shelby Sandlin, Mary Phillip Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton. Hi, everyone. Oh, okay. Sorry. I got Sorry. you. <laughs> 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 oh, so I'm on coronavirus adrenaline right now. <laughs> <laughs>